Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, July 20th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man making history as he rockets to space on board his Blue Origin spacecraft. Three other passengers along for the historic launch and successful touchdown on the sands of West Texas. Experts warning of an infection onslaught triggered by the Delta variant as the USC's coronavirus cases double from just one month ago. And amid continued protests in Cuba, the White House announcing a series of measures to help those fighting for freedom on the island. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. It was a very exciting and historic morning after this morning's Blue Origin launch, where founder Jeff Bezos, his brother Mark, 82-year-old aviation pioneer Wally Funk, and 18-year-old Oliver Damon blasted off on the company's first-ever human flight. That rocket taking off from West Texas on board the world's oldest and youngest astronauts ever. Five, four, command engine start. Two, one. History in the making. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos taking his astral journey on the new Shepard, a rocket developed by his company Blue Origin. Bezos was accompanied by his brother Mark, 82-year-old Wally Funk, and 18-year-old Oliver Damon. The crew taking the historic ride after finishing up 14 hours of training. The passengers launching at around 9-11 a.m. Eastern time from Van Horn, Texas. Two minutes after the launch, it accelerated to three times the speed of sound. The astronauts experiencing about three Gs as they headed to the edge of space, reaching a maximum speed of 2,233 miles per hour. Three minutes after launch, the capsule separated from the booster and they were in microgravity, weightless for another three to four minutes. And there we go. Our astronauts have passed the Kármán line at about 328,000 feet, continuing their ascent. You see the two vehicles there. Six minutes after launch, they buckled up again and started falling back to Earth, the booster touching down first. This as the capsule parachuted its way to the ground where the celebrations began. And touchdown. Bezos and the crew walking out and then popping a champagne bottle. On how it felt, oh my God! <laughs> my expectations were high and they were dramatically exceeded, but it felt so serene and peaceful and the floating. It's actually much nicer than being in full one gravity. Um, uh, it's a very pleasurable experience just from the sheer, just the way it feels, the tactileness of it. Uh, that it, you know, the the most profound piece of it for me was looking out at the Earth and looking at the Earth's atmosphere. Earlier, Bezos shared this video of their training in the simulator. They were sitting at these windows, the largest ever to fly to space, each seat getting a nearly perfect view. Wally Funk becoming the oldest person to go to space, training in the 60s for a women in space program, but never given the chance to go until today. We had a great time. It was it was That's wonderful. True. I want to go again fast. 18-year-old Oliver Damon of the Netherlands now also holds the title of the youngest person to ever fly in space. 
I hope that we are one of the first and let's hope that many, many more people can do this because this experience you should share with more and more people. It's so amazing. And Bezos at the post-launch press conference announced that he is donating $100 million each to Van Jones and Jose Andres, so they in turn can pass that money along to the charities of their choice. The company also says they have two additional crewed flights scheduled for 2021. And now, changing topics, we turn to the wildfires out west, those blazes continuing up and down the coast. A new brush fire called the Flores Fire broke out Monday afternoon in Malibu, but it has now been stopped after burning 15 acres and threatening some structures. A cause of the fire has not been determined, but what appeared to be a teepee and trailer were seen near the flames. Meanwhile, the bootleg blaze continues to rage across an Oregon forest, advancing five miles a day against an army of firefighters. Driven by wind gusts, it has so far burned more than 280,000 acres since starting on July 6th, consuming an area larger than New York City. More than 2,100 firefighters, a dozen helicopters and airplane tankers had 22% of the blaze under control. There's no consensus on when the fire might be fully put out. And now to Washington, where it's a crucial week of negotiations on Capitol Hill for two separate bills that together would spend over $4 trillion on infrastructure. But Senate Republicans are signaling they would likely oppose a procedural vote set for Wednesday on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Edwin Piti joins us from Washington, D.C. with the very latest on this. Edwin. That's right, Andrea. As we've been reporting here on U News, the Senate is voting on Wednesday on whether to begin the debate on a bipartisan infrastructure deal. But even though the bipartisan group continues to have productive talks, many Republicans do not think that the deal will come together in the next 24 hours. However, that doesn't mean the bill is dead. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer laid out a two-punch strategy on the Senate floor. He's committed to holding a procedural vote, but left it open on what, what the bill would be. Let's listen. Moving to proceed to a legislative vehicle, a shell bill, for bipartisan legislation, even while the negotiators finalize the text of that legislation, is a routine process in this chamber. We've done it repeatedly. It's a sign of good faith from both sides that negotiations will continue in earnest and both sides are committed to reaching an outcome. Schumer insists that this is a sign of good faith, but the reality is that the vote is just a shell amendment. And whatever happens on Thursday, Schumer will have to fill in the bill. If the bipartisan bill is ready, Schumer said that he will fill the shell. And if it's not ready, the plan is to fill the shell with transportation and water infrastructure bills that already had bipartisan support and give the group more time. So far, Republicans, Andrea, are not happy with Schumer's timeline. That's why they took their concerns directly to the White House so that they can ask Schumer to reconsider. But so far, the White House has pledged its full support to Schumer. The reason that continues to create division is how to finance the spending bill. But the real challenge for Republicans now is that Democrats are well underway in planning their infrastructure proposal as part of the reconciliation process. Live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin, for all those details from Washington, D.C. And this week, we spoke to Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, about the importance of the infrastructure deal for rural communities. She talked about her grandmother's own experience with a lack of running water. Let's go ahead and listen. 
My grandmother was one of those families. She didn't get running water or electricity till the mid 70s. I was in my, you know, I was a teenager when when that finally happened. Um, and um, I mean, I have to say that um, that changes someone's life. Some people might not understand or realize that there are communities in our country that don't have running water. There are still families who don't have a faucet to turn on or don't have a light switch to turn on. There are people who have, who have lived that way in America. There are you know, kids uh, in our country who were completely left behind because they didn't have broadband internet service uh, to get their schoolwork done on. Infrastructure, um, in so many ways, uh, it's a human right. And, and here in our country, uh, we need to make sure that everybody has, uh, essentially has a level playing field. The American Academy of Pediatrics now going against CDC guidelines recommending masks for all children in school. This, as the Delta variant accounts for 80% of all new infections right here in the U.S. The pandemic, a key topic today as the president meets for the second time with his entire cabinet. Lorraine Gassidis has the latest. COVID-19 cases in the U.S. doubling in the past month, the seven-day average jumping to nearly 30,000 in a matter of weeks. The Department of Health and Human Services on Monday renewing for another 90 days the public health emergency declaration, which was set to expire. If we don't get a significant proportion of these recalcitrant people vaccinated, you're going to be seeing a smoldering of this outbreak in our country for a considerable period of time, which is really unfortunate because what everybody wants in this country and elsewhere throughout the world is to be able to crush this outbreak. The pandemic expected to be a key topic today during the president's second full cabinet meeting to mark six months in office. Please get vaccinated. Get vaccinated now. It works. It's safe. It's free. It's convenient. You know, this virus doesn't have to hold you back any longer. It doesn't have to hold our economy back any longer. But the only way we put it behind us is if more Americans get vaccinated. The Delta variant now accounts for 80% of all new infections. In Florida, new COVID cases are up nearly 200% over the past two weeks, accounting for nearly 20% of the entire nation's new COVID infections. We're seeing a surge in COVID positive uh, hospital admissions here, uh, not only in our hospital, but throughout Jacksonville. Uh, we've doubled our number, number of COVID hospitalizations over the last week, uh, and it's a much uh, more uh, exponentially increase in patients versus what we saw in January of 2021. Meanwhile, as the beginning of the school year approaches, the American Academy of Pediatrics contradicting guidance from the CDC, saying all kids over the age of two returning to the classroom need to mask up regardless of vaccination status. The CDC recommendations may be at variance with that, but in, 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 in every respect, the CDC always leaves open the flexibility at the part of local agencies, local enterprises, local cities and states to make a judgment call based on the situation on the ground. So I think that the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, they're a thoughtful group. They analyze the situation and if they feel that that's the way to go, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. 
And Dr. Anthony Fauci says he wouldn't be surprised if we don't control this pandemic. Schools are going to start requiring COVID-19 vaccines as part of their routine immunization programs. Meanwhile, in Wall Street, the Dow Jones on Monday had its worst day since October. Investors fearing that new restrictions could come our way. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia received a half-day ban from Twitter Monday. The social media platform restricted Taylor's account after labeling two of her tweets about the COVID-19 vaccine as, quote, misleading. But this isn't the first time Greene has been reprimanded by Twitter. She was also suspended for 12 hours back in January after she shared false information about the 2020 election through Twitter. If Greene shares more misinformation in the future, she could face a permanent ban. And another coronavirus news after foreigners were banned from Canada for nearly 16 months, the country is finally opening its borders. Canada will open its borders to vaccinated Americans starting, starting August 9th. Fully vaccinated citizens and permanent U.S. residents will be allowed. International travelers can enter starting September 7th. Unvaccinated minors under 12 entering with parents or guardians will not have to quarantine anymore. And lastly, fully vaccinated travelers will not need a post-arrival COVID-19 test unless they have been randomly selected at the border. Anyone not vaccinated will still need to quarantine. After unprecedented protests by ordinary Cuban citizens speaking out against the regime on the island, President Biden is ordering a review of U.S.-Cuba policies, including taking a look at remittances, which is money sent to people there. Anti-government protests exploded earlier in the month. A number of people were hurt and hundreds reportedly detained. Monday, a senior administration official said the team will start working to, quote, identify the most effective way to get money directly into the hands of the Cuban people. The official also says the United States is actively pursuing measures that will both support the Cuban people and hold the Cuban regime accountable for violence, repression and human rights violations. And in the meantime, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has issued a warning to South Florida boaters planning to take part in a flotilla to Cuba. DHS said in an advisory that any boater intending to enter Cuban territorial waters must get permission from the U.S. Coast Guard. Violators risk facing fines of $25,000 a day and 10 years in prison. People who bring foreign nationals into the U.S. illegally risk facing fines of up to $250,000 a day and five years in prison. The trip has been pushed back to Thursday. According to organizers, the plan is to motor to international waters near the island but not cross into Cuban waters to let island residents know they have supporters right here in South Florida. Five House Republicans have been chosen for the special committee that will investigate the deadly attack on Capitol Hill on January 6th. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy will select representatives Jim Banks of Indiana, Jim Jordan of Ohio, Rodney Davis of Illinois, Kelly Armstrong of North Dakota, and Troy Nels of Texas to be a part of the select committee investigating the insurrection at the Capitol. Notably, though, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has final say over whether those appointees can join the committee. These five chosen by McCarthy are not the only GOP members, however. Pelosi appointed Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming to serve as well. 
The first hearings could begin next week. And in other news out of Washington, the Department of Justice will not be prosecuting former President Trump's commerce chief. In a letter made public Monday, the current Commerce Inspector General says Wilbur Ross misled Congress about the Trump administration's failed effort to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Despite evidence and legal documents that gave proof of Ross's misleading statements, the DOJ has decided not to prosecute. The Supreme Court ultimately blocked the addition of the question, but questions about census changes persist. And now to Los Angeles, where that city's government is preparing for a major change. Last week, President Biden nominated L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti to be ambassador to India. Now, L.A. City Council President Nuri Martinez could be called on to serve as interim mayor. And as Rafael Rodriguez explains, that would be a history-making move. Mayor Eric Garcetti has been nominated by President Biden as the next U.S. ambassador to India. It's a political move that gives Nuri Martinez a chance to become the first Latina mayor of Mexican origin in the country's second most populous city after New York. I thank God every day that he has given me the opportunity to make my childhood dream come true. Nuri Martinez is the daughter of Mexican immigrants. Born and raised in the San Fernando Valley, she was the translator for her parents who did not speak English. And she says she learned to represent them in their struggles for better wages and dignified jobs. My father was a dishwasher and my mother, she was a seamstress. Martinez has been serving the community for more than 20 years in different positions. She served on the Board of Education for the Los Angeles Unified School District. She was elected as a council member for the 6th District and in 2019 was unanimously elected as the first Latina president of the city council in city history. The mayor's nomination comes amid a growing homeless crisis in Los Angeles and a lawsuit against the city and county by the Alliance for Human Rights. Martinez says she knows how to deal with the problem. As a leader, what I have to do is support the community to put a stop to this problem. If we're building housing and providing services to these people, then these persons should not be living in our parks. Reported by Socorro Cruz in Los Angeles, Rafael Rodriguez, U News. Watchdog report says an immigration and customs enforcement detainee with an urgent medical need died after authorities failed to hospitalize that person. That information coming from a Department of Homeland Security Inspector General report. The finding was a result of an inspection done earlier this year of the Adams County Correctional Facility in Mississippi. It's used to house undocumented immigrant detainees in federal immigration custody. The incident took place in December of 2020 after a detainee with a history of hypertension asked for help due to chest pains and pain in his arms. He was treated at the medical unit and released, but a short time later collapsed and died. Meanwhile, the federal government says more than 10,000 unaccompanied migrant children in U.S. custody have had at least one COVID-19 shot. Under the care of the Health and Human Services Department, migrants who are at least 12 years old are given the chance to have a COVID-19 vaccine as soon as possible. More than 8,000 unaccompanied migrant children tested positive for COVID-19 between March of 2020 and this July. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Several national and international media organizations have published an investigation called Project Pegasus about how Israeli spy software was used to target journalists, human rights defenders, and members of the political opposition in several countries. The extensive list of names includes 15,000 phone numbers. Ana de Mendoza takes a closer look. Data. The, moment they do it, the espionage was discovered thanks to a leak made to Forbidden Stories, a Paris-based NGO which teamed up with Amnesty International to review a list of 50,000 telephone numbers that were targets of a cyber attack using Israeli software Pegasus. To digitally spy on human rights activists, journalists. For several months, a group of 80 journalists from 10 countries reviewed the phone numbers that had been targeted with the malware software since 2016. They discovered that among those spied on were opposition leaders in several countries and at least 12 presidents, including Mexico's Andres Manuel López Obrador when he was a presidential hopeful. His entire environment, all his children, his wife, even his cardiologist were digitally monitored. This is also the case of the parents of the missing students in Ayonitizapan. Mexico was the country with the highest number of targeted telephone numbers, roughly 15,000 numbers. Pegasus, developed by cyber surveillance company NSO Group, was also used during the six-year term of former Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto. 25 journalist numbers were found on the list, including those of Carmen Astrogay and Cecilio Peneda, who were murdered in 2017. The cell phone of Arturo Rodriguez, a reporter for the magazine Proceso, was also infected. This is an attack on freedom of expression. They were spying on me not because I was a terrorist, not because I was a criminal. They spied on me because of my journalistic work. Through that software, they can activate your camera, activate your microphone, and they have access to your contacts. NSO Group denied the spying allegations and says its products saves lives. This cybersecurity expert says that once the virus is installed on a cell phone with a simple click, it can replicate on other devices. The most dangerous thing about this, aside from the fact that there is a violation of people's privacy, is who has access to this information. Reported by Jessica Cermeño in Mexico City. Ana de Mendoza, U News. Joining us to talk about this is Karen Sissis. She's the editor-in-chief of the America Society, Council of the Americas Online. Thanks for joining us today, Karen. Welcome. Thank you so much, and it's such a pleasure to be with you. What has been the reaction to the news in Mexico? Well, there's a, obviously a lot of concern. Uh, first of all, as you as you mentioned, there were 15,000 people targeted in Mexico, which was the first client of the NSO group. And there are incredible concerns about uh, how it might have been used against journalists, human rights activists. And now there's the question of, has it stopped? Is it continued? Has it fallen into the wrong hands? Um, so there are be still a lot of calls uh, uh, for transparency, for some way to make sure um, that there is some sort of control in the surveillance. 
it is not the only surveillance software that was purchased in the past by the federal and state or state authorities. So um, there's also some questions about what could this mean for the future. Is there any information on who's behind the purchasing of the spy software in Mexico and perhaps how long it's been in use? Well, the, uh, in the case of Pegasus, uh, Mexico was the first client for NSO in 2011. And one of the key people signing the contracts uh, is a person who was a head of the intelligence agency, Tomas Zeron. Uh, he was very close to the Peña, to Peña Nieto, uh, the former president. And in fact, he himself has been tied to an embezzlement case and fled to Israel, where Mexico is currently seeking extradition. Um, in keeping with what you just reported, he was involved with what has been seen as a cover-up in the case of the Ayotzinapa, uh, 43 students who were disappeared. Um, so, you know, at the highest levels of authority um, in the past government, there are, we are seeing that there are connections to the purchasing and use of this software. Now, the leaked data also shows that investigators were looking into the disappearance of the Ayotzinapa students, that they were also targeted. What can you tell us about this as well? Absolutely. So uh, as many of your viewers may know, in 2014, 43 students uh, in Mexico were disappeared. Um, to this day, it is not clear exactly what happened. It appeared, it is, it's thought that there was some kind of mix-up and, and a mistake, case of mistaken identity involving organized crime and local authorities. The last government, the Peña Nieto administration, is thought to have perhaps engaged in some kind of cover-up. Now, it's come out in this with who's been targeted by Pegasus, that some um, of the independent investigators in that case uh, were targets, and even some of the family members of those who have been disappeared. What do you think will be the biggest outcome from all these revelations? I think we'll see a greater concern about how this, uh, how these tools are being used. Obviously, Lopez Obrador, the current president, is seen how seen how it's affected his own family. He has come out and said that um, it's no longer used in this way, and that he will be investigating if there are any links any anymore with NSO, and that these contracts will be canceled. But people are calling for transparency. How do we know that this is, still isn't being used? So I think what we will see is um, a greater awareness about how surveillance tools are used in Mexico and, and more calls for clarity around how they're used. Well, thank you so much, Karin Sissis of the America Society Council of the Americas. Take care. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.